Hello. Before we get started, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Human Restoration Project's fantastic patrons. All of this work, which includes free resources, materials, and this podcast, is available for free due to our Patreon supporters, three of whom are Tracy Smith, Joshua Sloat, and Trent M. Kirkpatrick. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 16 of Things Fall Apart, our podcast at the Human Restoration Project. My name is Chris McNutt, and I'm a high school digital media instructor from Ohio. Today's discussion is all about school lunch. I've always been perplexed by it. It's sort of taken as part of school, this fairly bland-looking, processed mess that students eat during the school day. And I think a lot about Michael Moore in the documentary Where to Invade Next, where he shows how ridiculous it is that the United States spends, on average, more than other countries' school lunch programs while not even serving fresh food. And it's not uncommon to view any school's lunch menu and see the same questionable offerings. There's chicken nuggets, French toast sticks, chicken sandwiches, hamburgers... And when I saw this new book, The Labor of Lunch, written by Jennifer E. Gaddis, I was thrilled to see this in-depth discussion on why school lunch is the way that it is. It's a chronicle of the history, the social issues, and just the modern movement of school lunch reform. Jennifer offers a complete in-depth look at what school lunch is in fantastic detail, and you can find our review of the book on our website. Further, you can support the University of California Press, which is the small publisher that supports this work, by using the promo code found in our show notes, which offers 30% off. The podcast isn't promoted. We just like the work and want to share it with people. When it comes to your your work, essentially, it's interesting because it's not only talking about just school lunch as a nutritional concept, but it's also talking about our economic inequalities, uh, lunch's connection to, quote unquote, women's work, uh, because it is historically a feminist cause. And, you know, for most people, including myself, when I think of school lunch, I think about lunch as pizza, chicken nuggets, hot dogs. It's always pretty much been the same thing, even when it was when I was growing up. Um, however, you've kind of traced the history of school lunch for over, really over a hundred years. Um, so, uh, and, and there's a lot of different things that go into that. So, could you talk about how school lunch has been connected to uh, both, just just in general, the United States historical problems? Yeah, for sure. Um, before I dig too deeply into that, though, I'll just mention I think um, some people don't even really realize that the school lunch programs that they might see operating in their local schools are connected, um, oftentimes, not always, but most of the time, to the National School Lunch Program, which was created in 1946. So, one of the things I really wanted to do with this book is to help people understand not only the history of kind of what's happened since the 1940s, but also um, I wanted people to really take away this appreciation that this program didn't kind of spontaneously arise from nowhere, um, had a 50-year history that really relied on a lot of more um, local-level organizing, oftentimes organizing that was led by women. So I think um, one thing that is important to recognize is I kind of um, talk about school lunch through this lens of it being a feminist cause, um, just because it's um, something that... um, 
if it's not taking place in schools, typically the people who would be the ones who would be preparing lunches for their kids um, would be women in their homes. So I think especially now, as um, we've recognized that there's such a time scarcity for so many women who have not only joined the labor market, but who are still doing, um, you know, a disproportionate share of the domestic work at home. I think it's important for us to think about school lunch as an example of how um, in at least one point in time, we sort of succeeded as women in saying we actually want to have new kinds of public programs that collectivize the care work that we're doing in our homes and make it public instead of private. So I think that um, there's a number of ways that over the years, so since the 1890s, when these experimental nonprofit school lunch programs first started popping up um, in urban areas around the country, um, that we can sort of see how various things like um, racism and patriarchal capitalism have have really impacted the program and its ability to um, really provide the maximum possible benefit to kids and workers and, um, you know, to the country as a whole. So a little bit more specifically, I think um, during the progressive era, so in the 1890s through the early 1900s, when these programs were first starting, um, they were mostly charitable lunch programs that were set up to help poor children. So there was this real concern about um, immigrant families in particular not being able to provide nutritious meals to their children. And there was also this concern that middle class women had, um, because this was kind of like um, a time when compulsory education was really um, increasing, like in the U.S. So it, it was, I think, this concern about like, oh, you know, our kids are in school all day. They need food. How do we make sure that they're fed? And there were these concerns that are very much, I think, similar to today in that um individual women were concerned with, okay, how do I make sure that I'm packing a healthy lunch and that it looks good and uh, it tastes good and it like kind of travels in a way that um, makes sure that all the different components aren't just like mixing together or drying out or kind of becoming gross, um, you know, over the four or five hours that it might be sitting out before kids going to eat it. So those same kind of concerns that parents might have today when packing lunches, I think were present then. And similar Um, there were a lot of concerns um, around this issue of food safety. Like, how do we know that um, even like the flour that we're buying to make bread or the bread maybe that we're buying from the bakery isn't using flour that has been cut with sawdust? So there were these real concerns about like what sort of um, additives or just in general kind of fraudulent practices might have been used at the time by the food industry to try to cheapen food in a way that would allow um, these companies essentially to profit more. So I think it's important to recognize that um, in the early years of this program, there were these real concerns about um, uh, really this idea of trust within the food system, because I think that that's actually something that's really motivating a lot of contemporary school food reform efforts is this idea of, well, these big food companies have, you know, made chicken nuggets and pizza that has tons of preservatives and additives and things of that nature. So one of the strongest, I think, trends right now is this um, notion of what people sometimes refer to as real food in schools. So this idea of cooking from scratch with more basic ingredients um, versus 
reheating these like processed factory made foods. So those same concerns were there a hundred years ago, which for me is like just this totally shocking thing to uncover. Um, but I think at the same time, there were these um, sort of darker strands of um, what then was referred to as Americanization. So because schools were a place where you could reach a lot of people at once, um, there were these ideas that there's kind of a particular way of eating that is American and that's superior to like um, more so like I would say like food ways of um, immigrants. So it was really this idea that um, there's this particular kind of white way of eating like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and um, this very white way of behaving. And there were some lunch programs at the time that um, really in order to kind of curry favor with administrators who maybe really liked this idea of Americanization, like linked their school lunch programs very closely to um, this idea because they really needed um, sort of whatever they could to convince people that these lunch programs were a good idea. So I think that um, that's kind of like part of the, the sort of darker side. And then from the 1930s through the 1960s, I think one of the things we really see is that federal support for these nonprofit school edge programs really disproportionately flowed to white middle class Americans, which is true of a lot of the federal policies that helped build the racial wealth gap that we see today. Um, and then during the late 1960s, a lot of anti-poverty groups and activist organizations, um, and again, um, women who kind of participated in these um, women's clubs, were very instrumental in uncovering and publicizing and politicizing um, the structural racism and economic discrimination that had really existed in um, the school lunch landscape um, during that time. They were able to win a right to free lunch in the early 1970s for um, poor children, and they were able to get um, some sort of um, kind of federal national standard for what actually it means to be poor. Um, but I think one of the things that we see kind of happening um, at that point is there's this, you know, as more poor people are actually served by the program, um, the food quality um, quickly plummeted and school lunch began to be really stigmatized as welfare food. And from that point, um, I think when it became a lot more sort of racially um, and economically coded, um, there were a lot of middle-class and upper-middle-class families who started to opt out of the program and um, instead look for alternatives, whether it be um, packing lunches for their kids or purchasing things on the a la carte line that were different from the federal school lunch. So when I grew up in the um, like late 1980s and um, 1990s when I was in school, I, th I think there was a really huge difference between kids who qualified for free and reduced price lunch and those who didn't. And it became really you know, obvious to see this kind of segregation, like just spatially in cafeterias. And I think as more and more of middle class and upper middle class families really didn't see their children being served by this program, it became an easier political target. And one of the things that I think I certainly didn't know um, when I was a kid, but 
came to appreciate as I was doing this research is that in 1981, the Reagan administration basically cut the budget for school lunch by about 25%. So if I like had any questions about why school lunch looked the way that it did when I was a kid, I think that that's definitely a part of the answer. And I think that I was fortunate in that I grew up in a household where my parents, um, you know, had the economic ability to provide a different kind of lunch for me if I wasn't happy with what existed in the school cafeteria. But that's a luxury that a lot of families don't have. So I think it's just really important that when we're thinking about these kind of policy changes and this arc of history, that we're really thinking about the people who really um, are dependent on this program and like recognizing that they too deserve, you know, a really healthy and um, like just genuinely positive lunch experience versus the kind of shame and sort of cast offs of like, you know, this is, this is good enough, but it's not great. School lunch has become something that's so status quo and something that's so commonplace that we don't really even question it anymore. Like I was doing um, like research over this to throw it into an article I was writing, including your, your work in there. And I was like, well, let's figure out what's on the lunch menu at the school down the street. And then I was like, well, is it the same in Iowa or in California or wherever I Google? And it's all the exact same foods, no matter really where I look, it's always the stereotypical, like, um, I remember from when I was in school, it's like the little wrapper kind of like chicken sandwich. That's just two pieces of bread and a piece of chicken, <laughs> like very breaded chicken. Sometimes even just like they, it, it, they know it's not going to be good. So that's things like the sloppy salad or like these like very <laughs> non appetizing sounding foods. It's funny that you bring that up because I do think that there's this, this kind of weird phenomenon with school lunch menus where I think you're absolutely right that when you read different menus, they might sound oftentimes like very much the same. But one of the things I learned in going around to a lot of different um, school kitchens and cafeterias is that you can't always like tell exactly like how good the food is from a nutritional standpoint or from like a taste and appearance standpoint based on the menu, because there's like so many things that have just been sort of coded as like, this is what school lunch is. Like this is good food, but it might actually be like, um, in one district, a super highly processed chicken nugget that maybe has a lot of chemicals that, um, I personally wouldn't want to be feeding children. And then in a different district, it might be that they're actually using, um, whole muscle meat instead of chopped and formed meat and that it doesn't actually have any kinds of additives or fillers that it's what people would refer to as being clean label so it's it's hard to tell sometimes when you're just looking at the menu so you kind of have to do like this deeper digging to understand like what's the food philosophy of the particular school so are they using language surrounding like clean labels um are they talking about um, what people sometimes refer to as ingredients of concern? Um, so things like high fructose corn syrup and artificial additives and talking about removing those from the um, ingredients and the foods that they're purchasing for the schools. Are they talking about a farm to school program? Because there are actually a lot of, I think, improvements in schools. So it's important to recognize even, um, I think, from the time that I was in school versus now, um, 
even though I think that there's still a lot of problems with school lunch that we need to address, um, the actual nutritional content has gotten a lot better since the enactment of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010. So that went into effect in 2012. And one of the big things that it did was it really increased the amount of whole grains and fresh fruits and vegetables in schools. So it's not to say that like the menus aren't still really problematic, but I just kind of wanted to flag that um, it's a little bit more complex and in general things have actually gotten better. Yeah, it's actually really interesting to know how complex it really is. Um, like, I mean, your your work has like hundreds and hundreds of sources. Like, it's incredibly complex to try to decipher everything. And it's really interesting to note that the the things that you're talking about in this book, it's the same as what's going on across the entire country, no matter what time period you're looking at. And as you were talking about just now, um, a lot of the arguments of the past sound the exact same as the arguments that are being made in this moment. Uh, like, for example, there's a part where you're talking about how um, Caroline Hunt, who was a child rights activist, she was a feminist, she talked to, about social justice. And particularly when it came to school lunch, she understood that lunch is more of a social justice issue than anything else, as in it's important that uh, the poor have the same opportunities as the rich when it comes to eating a healthy, sustainable meal. The kind of argument going on at the time was, which is the exact same argument that's going on now, is that when you are trying to feed everyone in this manner, it, well, first off, I guess the argument today would be that it's socialist, um, as it was in the 60s, uh, even though the whole concept of the school itself is socialist, if we want to get into uh, <laughs> into semantics. Um, but um, there's also like the idea of like, well, why don't you just bring your own lunch? Or why would we spend tax money on lunches when teacher class sizes are so large? Things like that. And what really stuck out to me more than anything else was that she, Caroline Hunt, was basically disparaged by higher ed people in a very neoliberal way. Like they basically said, you know, why are you focusing on social justice when it's really a issue of teaching them sewing or how to cook or uh, like basically career readiness uh, at that time period for for women or even now there's the, the concept of schools are more focused on this idea. That you need to be college ready or career ready, which, in my opinion, is a, a neoliberal coding. When you say that, you're basically saying we need to drill students to be college ready in, uh, in, in my opinion, inhumane style AP classes instead of focusing on a child's well-being first and then worrying about college and career second. They tend to go hand in hand if you do the first thing. So that's kind of a, a very roundabout way of asking, what are your thoughts on this concept of career and college readiness and how do, how do you see that factoring into the school lunch issue? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And the first thing I actually want to flag is that Caroline Hunt was the very first professor in the department where I currently am at UW-Madison. So she was the first home economics professor um, that we had, I think, in 1903 is when she started. Included her story in the book is because I find that so many of my students, so I'm, I'm now in a small department called Civil Society and Community Studies, which is part of the School of Human Ecology. And I think so many of my students um, have this idea, if they have any idea whatsoever of what home economics is, what they think of is exactly those kinds of like manual skills. So cooking and sewing and cooking is generally thought of as like, oh, you know, you open a box and maybe you add an egg. <laughs> That's kind of like, you know, what you would have learned to do in a lot of home economics classes if they were sponsored by any kind of 
food company or if your school got any kind of, you know, resources from those kinds of companies. So it's really important for me um, to make sure that they understand that home economics, as it was originally um, envisioned by the field's early founders, was very much um, motivated by this idea of how do we actually work together to promote the social good um, for everyone um, versus this idea of how do we just make um, household labor more efficient. But there was always this little bit of of tension um, between, well, on the one hand, it's actually important for us to um, bring this additional like value, like to make people understand that household labor is actually important. But on the other hand, like we exist within like a system that has assigned the majority of that labor to people who identify as women. So if we want women to have more power in the political and economic sphere, then we have to find a way to actually reduce the amount of time that they're spending on these things. So even this idea of how do we make household labor more efficient, um, part of it initially had this kind of political um, bent to it in terms of thinking about how do we actually make space for women to participate in things outside of the home. So I think that um, as far as this kind of current career readiness, college readiness movement goes, um, I think that um, it's really preparing people to fit within an existing system and particularly to be you know, workers within um, a capitalist society that's oftentimes quite oppressive and exploitive of people who have limited power within that system instead of preparing um, kids to build the futures that they actually want to live in. So I kind of see the type of educational work that Caroline Hunt was doing where she was really trying to get people to understand um, the power of their collective wealth. So doing things like, you know, staging um, boycotts of companies that maybe had um, bad labor or environmental practices, or she was also teaching people how to do what we might now call like citizen science. So like testing water quality and stuff like that um, around Wisconsin and asking them to be involved in like the pure milk movement. So making sure that um, milk didn't have, um, you know, various kinds of things added to it or that it was sanitary. So she was really trying to help people um, develop skills where they could participate in um, not only voicing what kind of political and economic systems they wanted to live in, but also have some additional layer of transparency and accountability. So I think that, um, you know, within this idea of career readiness and college readiness today, um, it has the same kind of disempowering effect of really teaching people that what you need to do is fit within this existing system because this is always how it's going to be. And what you need to do is to find a way to kind of, um, you know, succeed within it. When I think what we really need to do is to be paying a lot more attention to not just these like very short-sighted ideas of what creates value in a person's life or economic value in a society, but to instead think um, more in the long term and from a more holistic standpoint about, you know, what people's potential it might be in really making the world a better place versus just, you know, profiting corporations. I, I love the fact that that is kind of um, the underlying idea when it comes to a book that's about school lunch. Not to not to downplay not to downplay the whole point of the book, but it's interesting. The underlying idea is really a critique of society in general um, and all the different issues that go into, especially uh, America with like this neoliberal, corporatist, uh, racist, sexist, etc. Uh, society, and trying to find ways in order to fix that. Um, and kind of the 
the the solution that you offer, or I guess the thesis of the book, gets into promoting the work of women, particularly lunch ladies, which is one of my standout points of the book is where you talk about how many lunch ladies like the terminology lunch lady, even though it might be seen at first as kind of a demeaning term because of how it tends to be portrayed. I also love the fact that men are starting to be called lunch laddies, which I think is brilliant. Um, <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. But I mean, the when when we want to promote women as a, a lunch lady, we want lunch ladies to have this power informing their own school lunches, there is that stereotype of, I think of like the, the Simpsons or any cartoon where the lunch lady tends to be kind of like a non-socially, uh, socially uh, acceptable, I don't know if it's the right word, but they're portrayed in a very negative light, which leads to us being able to easily critique lunch ladies as not being like a legitimate worker or uh, not be a whole person or not really be someone who knows what they're doing. Um, so how can then educators counteract that? Because what you're talking about in the book is that it, it couldn't be further from the truth, that lunch ladies actually do have the capability of order to change the system. Yeah, I think that um, there's a few things that are important for people. Well, I'll um, mention a few kind of concrete ideas that people can engage in this issue. But I think as kind of background knowledge, there's some important things to recognize that it might look today as if this job has been de-skilled, especially if we're thinking about um, specifically the job as something that involves cooking. Um, but I think that one of the things that the book really um, tries to show is how this really um, happened not because people who are involved in school food service and specifically lunch ladies um, wanted it to, but it was kind of the influence of a lot of these big food companies and the extreme financial pressures that local food service departments um, were under that really led to this shift away from cooking from scratch to just reheating factory-made food. So I think that it's important to understand um, not only that this um, kind of happened over time and um, really had a, a certain like politics behind it, but also that, um, you know, the cooking side of things and even like the serving side of things is only one aspect of the work that school cafeteria workers do. So I, I in the book, try to talk about this through the lens of care. So I think that it's important for us to understand that they're actually part of our public care infrastructure. And they're not only providing direct care to students in terms of, you know, providing for their physical and emotional needs, and I say emotional in that it can be anything as simple as knowing the kids' names and like being kind to them um, when they walk through the lunch line to something, um, you know, that's a lot more complex than that. Like I actually had workers um, who I interviewed who would tell me that, you know, they became really close to certain students that they um, fed on a daily basis. And those students would confide in them, you know, not their teachers, not their principals, because they were seen as kind of an, a, an adult figure, but non-threatening. So I actually had some workers who would tell me that it was a very hard job emotionally because they would actually learn about kids who were experiencing homelessness or kids who you know, families were um, like broken up through like incarceration or things of that nature. And they would really try to be there for the students, but it was something that, you know, for, for them, um, like it took emotional labor to do that, right? 
Um, and then I think beyond the sort of direct care, providing physical and um, emotional needs for the kids, um, there's also all this work that goes into maintaining like the physical space of the cafeteria. And in particular, um, I saw a lot of instances of workers, if they had any kind of agency whatsoever in the school of food um, environment, um, they would oftentimes like decorate the cafeteria or, you know, do other things um, to try to make it feel like less of an institutional space for the kids that they're feeding. Um, so I think that those are two elements of what they work on. And then the third is something that people um, sometimes refer to as community mothering. And it's basically this idea of really understanding. So like, first of all, um, a lot of these workers um, live um, in the communities that they're serving. So they might have grown up with like the parents um, or you know, relatives of the kids that they're feeding. So they oftentimes will know like social relationships and they might also um, know kind of like who's friends with whom and what's going on kind of in the broader community. So um, I think that they're able to um, play this important role of understanding um, the broader kind of social context that kids are living in and helping with um, maintaining different kinds of relationships over time. And in particular, I think one of the relationships that exists more on the communal level that I think they're really important in cultivating is, um, on the one hand, um, this idea of like kids actually learning more about where their food is coming from. So in school districts that have farm to school programs, one of the aspects of community mothering that I think is really important is helping kids understand like their social relationships to the farmers and farm workers and um, people who are working in food processing plants who are actually, um, you know, doing work to grow and prepare the food before it arrives in the cafeterias. And I think another aspect of that community mothering that's really important is um, them uh, also um, really helping kids to understand. I have a second point, but maybe I can just stop with that, that point. Well, I was going to say that the, the thing that I thought was really interesting that might uh, fit into that is that that concept of uh, I don't know the exact term, but it's basically like food testing. So like exposing students to new foods like once or twice a month with the goal of like kind of like like I imagine if I would have grown up eating quinoa, I might like it now because uh, I think it's disgusting. Um. <laughs> oh, right. So that, that, that actually um, that, thank you. That jogged my memory. So what I was going to say is that um, I, I think that another piece of what they're doing is they're able to, for instance, like when um, taste testing is going on in the schools or um, when um, menu items are changing or even when menu items look the same, like it appears like, oh, they're just still serving hamburgers. But in reality, if they're switching from like a pretty status quo hamburger patty to a clean label hamburger patty um, that doesn't have like pink slime was like a big issue in school for a while. Um, so they can actually communicate those changes to the people around them who might have kids in the schools. And I think because they work on the front lines of school food service, and they're also like really considered like members of the working class, <laughs> they um, I think have more credibility when they describe what's going on in the schools versus like if parents get some sort of like letter sent home from like the principal or from like 
even like the director or manager of the school food program. I think hearing from frontline workers um, in more of this kind of one-on-one word of mouth way um, has a lot of power in um, getting parents to trust that something different is actually happening in their schools. A quick reminder that the Human Restoration Project's work is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. As we continue to grow and build a progressive education hub, we need more supporters to support our growing infrastructure costs. By contributing $3 a month, you can help spark this initiative and make it come to life. Visit us on our website at humanrestorationproject.org to learn more. I feel like, at least in the circles that I'm involved in, this this issue is kind of unexplored, like as in it, it, there's a lot of really great work going on around the country, but I don't feel like I hear too much about it. Um, like, it, like, for example, like you specifically talk about Minneapolis public schools. Um, and as you mentioned, they're, they're they have farm to table. They have all this great information on their website about what they do. Like food has become part of the curriculum, which is a goal that people have had now for over 100 years, dating back to the progressive era, as you talk about in your work. Where would people go in order to learn more about how to change their own school's lunch program if it's not up to the standards that they would like it to be? Yeah. So um, there's a few places that I would specifically recommend. So a nonprofit called the Chef Anne Foundation has a really great parent advocacy toolkit. So if you um, just go to the Shafian Foundation, um, you can find that and it kind of walks you through like how to learn about what's going on at the local level and how your local program fits within this um, broader um, kind of state and federal level infrastructure and gives you like very specific advice um, for how to move forward and trying to make changes in, in your own um, local district. Um, I'm actually building out a community reading guide um, that will be up on my website within the next couple weeks, and that will have some suggested activities for organizing. So I'm, I'm drawing on some of the stuff that Chef Anne Foundation has already put together, but um, kind of adding some additional things that relate more to the labor and community organizing side of things. And um, just in response to your earlier question too about what educators can do, I think um, supporting like the workers' labor struggles and talking to people about how this work actually matters and specifically sort of modeling to kids that this is respected work, I think are all really important things. And educators and parents and kind of anyone who's interested in this issue, I think can play a really important role in making things better by advocating for a higher reimbursement rate and other kinds of changes um, within the Child Nutrition Act reauthorization, which should be happening in the next year or so. So I think that um, paying attention to what's happening at the policy level is a really important thing, but I recognize that it can be really confusing for people. So what I would recommend is um, there's actually a nonprofit organization called Food Corps that um, really first became known for... um, its work in doing food education. So Food Corps is actually um, sort of linked to AmeriCorps and they have several hundred service members in schools around the country who do a lot of this like taste education and other kinds of things like that with kids. Um, but they've recently sort of branched out to where they're moving beyond just this like direct service model to devoting a portion of their time to really thinking about systems change. And on their website, they have a really helpful um, resource. It's their policy action center. And you can go to that section of their website and actually sign up 
up for uh, policy alerts. And I think that their um, team there does a really, really great job of making like this kind of complex legislative landscape really digestible for people and the actions that they suggest, I think are very easy to follow. So for people who want to get involved in more of the federal level, like policy advocacy side of things, I think that's a really great place to start. And then the last piece that I would recommend is, um, especially for people who are interested in more of the local food side of things, um, the National Farm to School Network has a lot of really great resources on their website about how to um, start a farm to school program if there isn't one at your school or how to um, maybe access additional resources if you're trying to um, grow like what your farm to school program looks like. Um, I would say with um, any of these changes, though, one of the things that is really important to keep in mind is that you might face a fair amount of resistance, but it's important to understand that um, resistance kind of comes from different sources. Sometimes um, it's that people feel constrained and like they don't actually have the resources to make change or like, oh, these parents are going to care about this for an issue, um, you know, that affects their kids. And then as soon as their kids graduate in a year or two, like, you know, they won't be involved anymore and we're going to be stuck with this stuff. So I think it's really important to kind of build a base of, um, like interested parents and community members who are really willing to work on this in the longer term. There's some changes that I think can be made um, more in the short term and other things that really are about longer term planning. So I think that it's really important to just approach this whole issue as if it's really um, a partnership between like you know, people in civil society and like the school district itself. Um, I think that sometimes I've seen these kind of reform efforts not go so well when um, the people who are working in the school food service department feel just like attacked or like, you know, people don't appreciate like that they're really maybe trying to do a good job with limited resources. So I think understanding first kind of what the situation looks like and school um, is really a, a good way to kind of build um, some good faith. It really is a systems issue rather than a person's fault. Um, like it's there's so much going on, especially like once you get into how the regulation works and how the corporate connections work and just all the little tiny things you have to think about when doing this. It's it's no wonder that it functions at all, uh, given uh, how complex it is. But actually, can I add one thing to that? Um, so you, so you, you did jog my memory about something in that it's yes, it's very complex. Um, but I think one really simple thing that parents can do that they don't often think about is being really strategic about expressing what they want the school lunch program to look like and then rewarding the school district like when it starts to make those changes. And what I mean by that is that a, a lot of people um, have you know started to say, well, we want food in schools to be more scratch cooked. Um, we want it to be um, more culturally appropriate. We want it to use more locally sourced ingredients. And I think that when districts start to make those sorts of changes, even if their menus might not be totally perfect, it's really important for um, families who might be opting out of the program to start opting back in. And I think that one thing that's important to recognize is that um, there's about 30 million kids who participate in the school lunch program every day and another 20 million who don't participate. And the bulk of those 30 million um, are 
kids who qualify for free or reduced price lunch. Um, it's not to say that um, some of the 20 million um, wouldn't also be eligible, but the vast majority of those kids um, are opting out because they have like some sort of um, economic resources that are beyond those of the 30 million. So um, I, I think that it's really important to try to get some of those 20 million kids to opt back in because the way that school lunch finances work is that um, you really need high levels of participation in order to enable a school district to continue to make positive changes. So one of my favorite examples of that um, actually comes from Austin um, Independent School District in Texas. And their school food program has done a lot of really wonderful stuff to improve. They um, passed something recently called the Good Food Purchasing Program um, that not only looks at the environmental impact and local economic impact of purchasing, but also looks at workers' rights and nutrition and animal welfare. So it's more of this kind of holistic framework for how to think about starting to maximize the public value of um, purchasing food for like public institutions like schools. So they've done a lot of really great stuff to change what the food looks like, um, but they still have, um, and they actually have a number of schools um, in the district where like all kids get free lunch um, through something called the community eligibility provision. Um, but they still have about 50% of kids who opt out of their lunch program. So their food service director actually went on the local news at the beginning of the school year and said, Hey, like for all of you who are packing lunches for your kids, um, I want you to know that if you were to let your kids participate in the school lunch program one time per week, I could afford to serve grass fed beef in all the cafeterias. If you were to let them opt opt in two times per week, I could afford to serve organic produce. And if you were to let them opt in three times per week, I could afford organic milk. So I think that it's important for people to understand like that those kinds of quality improvements really depend on um, them sort of opting back into the system to fix it. Um, the only caveat that I would give there is that it's really challenging um, for families that are like sort of close to the poverty line and close to um, even like the 185% level of the poverty line, which is like the cutoff for a reduced price lunch, um, because those families, you know, they can pay 40 cents for their kids' lunches, but if they don't, um, if they don't qualify for reduced price lunch, they have to pay the full price, and that full price is set by local school districts. So on average, it's between two to three dollars, um, but <laughs> some places charge a lot more than that. I was actually just talking to one of my students here at UW Madison, who's from New Jersey, and she told me that her school lunches cost five dollars and eighty-five cents. So she said that her family. Yeah, no, exactly. So she said that her family never participated, um, not because like she, you know, didn't think the school lunch was good enough, but because like they couldn't afford to pay that much for three kids every day. So she just bought a sandwich. So I think that it's important for us to, I think, on the one hand, move to a universal free model of school lunch, but then to make sure that once that's something that's available to families, that um, families, even if they have the economic ability to opt out, that they're instead opting in, but then holding the district and the federal government accountable for what they want those lunch programs to actually look like. It's very interesting how like kind of economies of scale work where it's, if people opt in, they can't afford those different things. Um, it, it makes sense 
but I guess I didn't really think about it. Um, I mean, realistically, in order to make this work at a federal level, the government has to really go all in to make sure that everyone has adequate funding or else you're going to run into the exact same situation that has happened in the past, which is the rich kids get the solutions and then everyone else gets left behind over time because it's just not sustainable without government federal uh, funding. And in order to make that happen, you talk about how it can't be piecemealed. Like you can't just like make a little tiny change and hope that that really makes a big shift. And I think about the debates going on in this country with healthcare and education and all these other serious, um, mostly economic problems um, between rich and poor that occur. Um, do you have like what are your hopes for the widespread changes of school lunch? And do you see that eventually spreading to things like I mean, it's not really brought up a lot, but like the concept of universal breakfast uh, or other things that would help um those especially in low income communities have access to healthy food at school? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And one thing I'll say is that, so I basically finished the, the book um, in February of 2019. And so much has happened since then. It's really exciting to me. Um, and I didn't get to talk about it in the book, obviously. But I think that there's been this huge shift in the amount of attention um, that policymakers are giving this issue of universal free school meal programs. And I think a big thing that's fueling that is um, all of the kind of public outrage surrounding this practice that people refer to as lunch shaming. So for those who don't know what that is, it's basically when um, children accrue lunch debt. So when they don't pay their lunch bill over a period of time in order to kind of get their um, caretakers to pay up schools might use different tactics like serving a cold cheese sandwich or um, dumping like a kid's lunch tray or um, it used to be that sometimes they would also use like hand stamps or other kinds of like visual like markers or um, in some school districts they also um, tell kids essentially that they can't participate in extracurricular activities like prom or things like that if they have lunch date lunch debt um, so I think that that issue, um, and particularly how social media has sort of shown some of these shaming tactics, has really elevated this issue. Um, and so there's actually been, um, I think, a really positive and exciting um, policy development in the last month. So Senator Bernie Sanders and um, Congressperson Alan Omar from Minnesota, um, the two of them actually just recently introduced this thing called the Universal School Meals Program Act. And what I really love about it is that it moves beyond just this idea of universal school meals, so including um, breakfast and lunch and a snack, um, to actually say, you know, that's something that we need to do to just make sure that all kids have healthy food and that no one experiences stigma. And we actually start to create the conditions for like school cafeterias to feel like inclusive spaces and to actually engage in like the educational side of food nutrition, but we want to move beyond that. Uh, so in this legislation, um, a couple of the things that they propose that I think would make um, just a world of difference are um, increasing the reimbursement rate. So they're, I think, proposing an increase in about 30 or 40 cents per meal, um, which I think would make a big difference in terms of um, what workers are able to make and um, what sort of 
things schools are able to do um, with their supply chains as well in terms of promoting equity um, and making sure that food chain workers who are some of the poorest workers um, in the country are actually starting to um, earn better wages and have better working conditions. Um, but they also have this stipulation that I think is amazing um, where they're saying that any school district that sources at least 30% of their ingredients from local sources would get an additional 30 cents reimbursement from the federal government per meal. So it's the first thing um, that I've seen would sort of recognize that the kind of grants that the U.S. Department of Agriculture currently provides for farm to school programs tend to be more about like planning and kind of setting up infrastructure. Um, and they're not really any kind of sustained incentive um, to continue this kind of purchasing. And they don't provide any kind of cost offset to making this investment in like good and fair food. So I love that this bill is linking these different aspects of food justice together, both for the kids and for the workers who feed them. And I think it's also really using our public school programs in a way that we should use them, which is basically to start creating the kinds of economic and ecological changes that we need to make happen. So I love that they're actually trying to use like public money to sort of drive this type of sustainability transition. So I think if people can support that bill, that would make a huge difference. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Things Fall Apart from the Human Restoration Project. I hope that this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to push the progressive envelope of education. You can learn more about progressive education and stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org.